Let's uh, stay standing and read a passage of scripture together, if you would, please. I have no idea what that is. Let's read this together, shall we? Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Father, we thank you for the word of God. Thank you for worship today. Uh, We ask, God, that you'll continue to bless us as we enter into your scriptures. May your Holy Spirit lead us and guide us and um, form us, transform us, As we enter into this new uh, garden series today, we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, please, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. What picture comes to mind when I say the word garden? Food. (laughs) Abundance. If you're a farm kid like myself or you have a country background, I'm pretty sure that sweet corn and carrots and green beans and tomatoes, all of those things come to mind uh, when, you, when you hear the word garden. Perhaps when you think of the word garden, something much uh, creative takes place in your mind, something maybe around the house. Wish that looked like my house. A flower garden might just be your thing. Perhaps when you think of the word garden, something much grander comes to mind, like this little plant and flower garden downstate. It's called um, Longwood Gardens. This actually is my backyard plan. (laughs) Maybe when you think of the garden, something more palatial comes to mind, like this landscaped, hedged, and flower garden of a European castle. The story of humanity, our story, interestingly enough, involves a garden. In Hebrew, the word is actually a park, interestingly enough. I'm pretty sure it doesn't have roller coasters in it, Henry, but nonetheless, it is a park. In Greek, it's paradisos, which is the transliteration of the word paradise. That's where we get that word from. The paradise of God was not only a historical reality, as we're going to see, but it continues to be a reality. We don't often remind ourselves of this. Although it's not in this earthly dimension, as the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, and even modern-day saints have experienced, there still exists a paradise. It is the hope of all who follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. It's the one who said to the dying thief, truly, today, You will be with me where, church, in paradise. So it's someplace. It's not in, I believe, this earthly realm anymore. I think God put it in another dimension, as we would call that. But that doesn't mean it's not a reality. It just means we can't see it. But it is the hope 
of all of us who follow after Jesus Christ. Today I'm going to begin a summer series called God's Garden. And I want you to see all the subsequent passages that I'll be bringing to you. Uh, They all have their origins at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Something happened in this garden. The intentions in in Genesis 2, the failure in Genesis 3. And how that has affected everything from our very person to the very world that we live in. It's going to be used by Jesus over and over again to teach his people about the state of one's heart, about sin, about our enemy, and more importantly about the kingdom of God, which includes the idea of paradise. So I want to begin our journey this morning by looking at the context of all of that, beginning in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. So if you have your Bible or our Bible app, I'm going to take us through 4 through 7 so that we can just see uh, how this leads us into the main points of that garden scenario. Uh, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. I don't know if you noticed this, but I'm a language guy and, uh, and I, I like syntax. Syntax and grammar, it's, it's boring to most, it's not boring to me when I study scripture because I find these unique gems in here. I don't know if you've noticed this, but look at that passage and tell me the inversion. Do you know what I'm seeing? The first mention is, this is the account of the, you get to the bottom and what does God do with that passage? He inverts it. When they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Why is that important? Because God tells us how he created the world in what chapter? Which chapter? One. We're not in chapter one. We're in chapter two. So the argument it is, is that this is why this isn't real. You've got two different accounts of creation. They're backwards. That's not true. People just don't understand that there's, the emphasis is different in chapter 2. The emphasis is not on how God created. The emphasis is on God and his relationship with man. That's going to be the difference here. All right. So that's important to understand that God is going to be focusing on the earth. That's the intention that's going to be given to it. All right, next one, if you would, please. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, from the Lord, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. And there was no one, interestingly enough, to work the ground. So God created the ground to be what, church? To be worked. So there's a secondary purpose for the creation itself that had to do with man. That's what the point is. Verse 6, but streams came up from the ground or the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground much like a mist. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. I've said this over and over, but just to be reminded, uh, the first man's name was, church, Adam, coming from the dirt in Hebrew, Adama. So Adam, his name is a form of dirt. Um, it connects us with the ground. We are part of it. And that's the emphasis that God brings out 
in the second chapter. The point that I want to make is that we're not told, by the way, where the first man was made. All we know is that God made him and that he's going to have some travel plans coming up. Uh, This is an interesting point as well. I'm just going to give you this. You don't need to pay me extra for this this morning. I'll give it to you for free. There are some scholars who look at the distinction between where God created man and where God created woman. That man was created where? Outside of the garden and brought into it and that woman was created inside of the garden. That the, the emphasis is that God, that God has put within man something that has to do with being out there. And he's brought into something that's controlled. A woman is created with boundaries. She's created within something. And by generalization, she needs the security of this. Does that make sense? It's generalizations, but I think that's interesting to work through. Let's look at verse 8, if you would, please. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east. That always amazes me as well. That God did something. Outside of the creative act, God does something specific and intentional. The Lord God planted a garden in the east, and he called it what, church? He called it Eden. And there he put the man that he had formed. Just as the Lord placed the sun and the moon in their perspective places, just as the stars were set in their creative positions in the sky, so does God specifically place this man that he's now created. It tells us that God had a specific plan for Adam. It also tells us that God did something in addition to his overall general creation. He created something indeed that was very specific, something specific for himself, I would argue, and for the man that was created in his own image. The name of this park, this paradise, was called Eden. Interestingly enough, it means delight. When God looked at all that he created, he called it good. But when he created Eden, he said something different. He names this place. This is my delight. It's a special place. It was so special to God that he wanted the first person, the one made in his own image, to reside there. It was his intent, as St. John Chrysostom would write, that man might also take delight in what God had provided for him, that it might furnish him with satisfaction and a feeling of gratitude or a feeling of thanksgiving. Verse 9 describes the garden itself. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were, church what? Pleasing to the eye and, and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We see in this verse that God is a God of beauty. He loves things that are, are pleasing to the eye. He's a God of aesthetics. Uh, I, I was teaching Genesis one time, and I asked someone this. Why did God create green? Or yellow? Is anybody old enough like me? I grew up, I was born in 1962. Um, Our first television set was and gray. (laughs) 
<laughs> Those two things. We had a three-color TV set, and we got along just fine with that, did we not? That's all we had. Why didn't God create in black, white, and gray? He could have easily done that. But God is a God of expressive creativeness and aesthetics and color. And if you think about that, all of the different colors. You know, when I was a kid, too, when you went to school for the first time, you got your box of crayons. Anybody remember that? You had 10. <laughs> 10 colors. Now when kids come to school, they have what? Like a luggage full of things like puce and some other things that you have to go is this purple? I'm not sure what this is. Standard basic colors. But God has all this array of amazing beauty that God has set forth for us. God delights in beauty. He delights in joy and in, in things that bring us these feelings, internal feelings of looking at something and then experiencing it in a way that beauty does. And that's perfect creation. When I go to Longwood Gardens, I'm in awe of the beauty and diversity of God's creativeness. There's a sense of grandeur as well as, as peace when I roam the estate. And then I remind myself, this is broken. This stuff dies. This stuff needs replanted. Can you imagine what paradise must have looked like? We go on vacation and we are in awe of the, the amazing beauty of God's world and, and yet we have to be reminding ourselves this thing is in a fallen state of being. How much more is paradise going to be? God also meets the tangible needs but he also uh, he meets them in the same way. He, he doesn't just create food for our sustenance. Have you ever tried to eat those protein bars that taste like recycled cardboard? I would rather die than eat those things. They say they're supposed to be good for you. I, I, I don't think so. God created food to be nutritional, but he also created food to be enjoyed, to be pleasing to the eye and pleasing to the palate. Good food and good for food. Do you think the banquet of God is going to be filled with food that you have to eat? Eat your broccoli, Rob. Someone said, there's not going to be broccoli in heaven, is there? I said, every meal. But you're going to love it. That's the difference. It's hard to give thanks to God when you have to choke down your diets. But when I sit down to a fresh bowl of garden-picked green beans that have been soaked in butter, leftover bacon grease, which I'm sure Adam must have eaten it that way. It was a bacon grease substitute because there wasn't any death yet, but I'm sure he had something in mind there, oh my goodness sakes, a little heaven that touches earth. You see, God delights in delighting us. He wants to have us, help us to have joy in life. 
But in the midst of this amazing garden, God put two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And verse, per verse 1 and 2, God said that he made everything in the garden or end in creation, and he called it what, by the way? Do you remember that, Genesis 2, 1 and 2? He looked at it and he called everything. <clears throat> so these trees are not bad trees. The tree of life is not a good tree, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is, is a, not a bad tree. They're both good trees. So we have to ask the question, what's significant about those trees, and what is so good about them? They were different from all of the other trees that God planted in the garden. God planted all kinds of trees, trees for visual enjoyment, trees for fruit, for food, and then these two and he put him, by the way, in the middle of the garden, which I find significant as well. The tree of life was the tree that brought life uh, to all who partook of its fruit. Revelation 22, we see the same type of tree or same tree, we're not really sure, extended over the, the river that flows out from the throne of God. We don't have time to expand on this, but it's interesting <clears throat> I was talking to Pastor Joel about this, that the, there are four rivers mentioned in Genesis 2, and they come out of a source. Isn't that interesting? We're not told where that source is, where that comes out of, but in Revelation 22, we have that same situation, that there is a source out from underneath the throne room of God, the river of life comes out, and the tree of life kind of extends itself over or is planted on both sides of the river. So we've got these amazing bookends of reality, these trees. And the tree of life is one of those consistent ones for the healing of the nations that brings goodness to those who are, uh, who are residents of that. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was also a good tree, but in verses 16 and 17, uh, God forbade Adam, uh, Adam to eat from it or he would die. It's the first prohibition in Scripture. You shall not eat of that tree lest you die. How can a deadly tree in the garden of, of God's Eden be a good thing? You ever asked that? It was good because it tested the man's love for God. That's why it was a good tree. Adam had no idea what death was. Nothing had ever died, so Adam's obedience is not predicated on the fact that he understands the consequences. It's like telling a child not to do something or they won't get a fresh chocolate chip cookie. Well, if the child has no idea what a fresh chocolate chip cookie is, he doesn't understand the consequences. Does that make sense? If you tell me I can't have something, but I have no idea what that is, or something's going to come, some sort of a punishment, a withdrawal of something, and I have no idea what it is, I'm not going to miss it. I don't understand it. So we have to read that into the context of the Scriptures. Adam was told, I don't want you to eat from that tree, because in the day that you do, or thereof, you shall surely die. And Adam went, well, okay, don't know what that means, but clearly God doesn't want me to do something. So out of love for him, I won't do it. Does that make sense, church? I don't think it does, by the way, because I don't think we figured that out yet. Another sermon for another time. 
I want you to think about um, something for a moment. I want you to think about the fact that maybe God didn't want Adam to eat from that tree because he wasn't ready for it yet. That this was an issue of maturity. Not a, not a withdrawal forever, but a withdrawal for now because you're not ready for whatever that knowledge is, is about. Good and evil were in existence at that time. Satan and his loyal angels had already rebelled against God. How do we know? Because somebody shows up in the garden in Genesis 3. We're not told when that happens, but all things were created, and after the creation, something happened in the heavens. Satan rebelled. One-third of the angels went with him, and now we've got this complexity in God's world of good and evil, and Adam has no idea of, of the evil part. All he knows is the good part. He's not ready for this yet. Think about your, your five- or six-year-old child or grandchild, showing them graphic pictures of a concentration camp at Auschwitz or Dachau. Uh, You wouldn't do that, would you? Those kids would have nightmares forever. Why? They're not what? They're not old enough. They're not ready. They're not mature enough to handle something that's so graphic and so evil. They hopefully will be, but we would never do that. The same is for Adam. The tree was good, but Adam was not mature enough to handle the ramifications of the spiritual conflict that would ensue with his understanding and his awareness of evil. I find this very interesting as well. Once you are aware of evil, you have to do something with it. You can't just let it lie. Now you know that there's a conflict and it will be coming at you. So like a good father, God says to Adam, don't eat. The garden was also a place where man found his purpose. Look with me at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. Did I just go backwards? No, I didn't, did I? The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Weeds did not come in until after the fall. Work was given before the fall. Therefore, church, work is good. Work is not a result of the curse. Work has been part of the creative design of man and woman ever since God put them into this world. It gives purpose. I also want to communicate this. It's also part of the image of God. Look with me, please, at John 5. This is a deity passage. Jesus is, is uh, trying to establish his deity to the religious leaders at this point, but he says something interesting in John 5 and 17. Jesus, in his defense, Jesus said to them, these religious leaders, my father is always at something. What is it? <clears throat> he's always at work. Oh, by the way, he's at work. See the rest of the sentence? To this very day, he didn't cease working on the seventh day permanently. He took a rest and then he looked at all he did and he said, this is good. And then Monday morning showed up and God got his lunchbox back out and said, I'm going to work again. That's the cycle, the pattern that God gives to us all the way from the Old Testament in the Shabbat. My father is always at work to this very day and because God the Father is at work. I too am what, church? I too am working. 
And if God the Father is working and Jesus is working and by extension the Holy Spirit is continuing to work and as images of God and followers of Jesus, then our purpose and our joy and our delight should be in what? So maybe some of us need to change our minds on getting up on Monday morning. But that's what retirement's for. Right, Rob? (laughs) I don't think you ever stop working. In fact, most of you who are retired tell me that you're more busier now than you were when you were working. So I'm never retiring. Just going to keep it even. There's a purpose for what God uh, does with man by putting him in the garden. He just doesn't set him in there and give him nothing to do. He gives him purpose. He gives him work. Work is a gift. It tells us of our purpose. Adam, his work was to, to, to work the garden, to care for it. It was to help creation attain its highest purpose, which was to glorify God. So Adam pruned and he transplanted and he arranged, just like a talented florist takes a bunch of diverse flowers and plants and creates something that would not otherwise happen on its own. I'm always amazed when I go pick up flowers for some of my shut-ins. I go down to Nosegay and I pick up, I, I, I'll tell Jan or I'll tell Marge, hey, I just need something, some, something pretty. And they take all of these different types of flowers and different types of colors and they put it in a really nice floral-looking um, wrap and I go, wow, how did that happen? Amazing. And every week we go out and we cut our grass and trim our hedges and keep from violating our neighborhood laws. Um, But we do so because we want to have things look beautiful. I find this interesting as well in John 15, talking about Jesus. Jesus uses that analogy of pruning us. It's not about the weeds. It's about making us produce more fruit. And so God has to sometimes cut those branches off that aren't yielding, some that have died or some that have outlived their purpose. That's what Jesus does for us. And that's what God asked Adam to do in the garden. It had nothing to do with weeds. It had nothing to do with the curse. It had everything to do with, I'm going to put you in charge of this. I want to see what you can do with this. Make it beautiful. Make it more beautiful than it is, Adam. One other thing that I want you to see, this goes to Genesis 3. We're going to bypass all the sin stuff because I want you to see what actually happened. I think this was a habit. And I also think I can argue that God put this garden together, not just for man, but I think he put it together for him as well. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was doing what, church? So he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. God was taking a stroll and I think he did that quite often to be honest with you. Why? Because his intended purpose always with man was to do what? Was fellowship. It was to walk with him, to enjoy creation, to celebrate all the goodness that God had around him and to do it with his creation with the creator himself. Wow. What an amazing gift that was to man. 
And it's also the hardest thing about this whole tragedy. It was God's delight to be with his people and to see God's people delighting in what God brought in. It's why sin was so harmful because God could no longer walk amongst his creation and fellowship with it. Humanity was cursed and so was the rest of creation. It's also why Jesus came back to earth to be born into humanity, to be like us so that he could restore all that was broken, not only humanity but creation back to its original paradiso. It's our hope and it's our expectation as well. I want to give you some closing points as we kind of just close our time together. The first is this. God has a specific plan for you and he has a specific place for you. Uh, I I jokingly bring out this old verse. It's found in the Old Testament with David. When Saul and Jonathan were killed in the battle with the, uh, the, the Philistines, and David was uh, now the successor to the throne, one of the things that David asked in his prayer was very, very simple. It was this, where do you want me to live? How about that for a prayer request? Especially if you're thinking about moving. Lord, where do you want me to live? God has a specific place for us, a specific designation where he needs us to be so that we can be witnesses, witnesses to those who are around us so that we can make the most eternal effect in this world by where we are. You know, I think of my neighbors. Um, I know at least two of them don't know the Lord. I'm not sure about the other ones, but God has strategically placed me somewhere for that witnessing purpose, to pray, to have open doors of conversation if God should lead me to do that. God has specifically created you for a purpose. He's created you and put you in a particular place. And if you're struggling with that this morning, I want you to pray and ask maybe God those very simple things. Where do you want me to be and what do you want me to do? Interesting. Second, God delights in delighting us. And it should move us to a place of gratitude and thanksgiving. Think about the joy and the pleasures you experienced this week and take time this morning to give thanks to him who delights in you. I catch myself every once in a while. I'm an introvert. I don't like a lot of noise. I just like it quiet. So sometimes I'll just sit out in my back, sitting my porch area, hopefully no barking dogs and no neighbors. And sometimes I... In the midst of reading my Bible, I just close my eyes and I just listen. I listen to wind. I listen to trees. I listen to birds. Does that make sense? I just listen to the creative world that God has put inside of me. And, And something happens to my inward spirit when that happens. I can breathe just because of the simple natural world that God has extended to me and allows me to enjoy. And then I think about other times where I'm rushed and I'm chaotic and I'm super stressed and those very same things are there for me to take advantage of and to listen to and guess what I don't have time for? I don't, I don't have time for the very things that are supposed to allow me to take a deep breath and to be reminded of the fact that God is good And that he's created this world for my enjoyment and he delights in me and he delights in delighting me with simple pleasures that bring joy to my life. 
that he's created all around me. So take some time to do that today, to delight in the things that God has given to us. God will also put some testing in our path, by the way. It's not meant to hurt you. It's meant to reveal your heart. And the the question that always comes out of that is, do you love me? Will you obey me? Even though you don't understand why something is forbidden or why something is withheld, you may not have got the job. You may not have gotten to the school that you wanted to. You may have not, not have gotten the promotion. Something might have not went your way this week, but God has deliberately put that in your path for you to ask the question, do you still love me even when I said no to you? It's a test. It's not meant to hurt. It's not meant to harm. It's meant to open up your heart to him for you to see. And lastly is this. God from the very beginning has sought fellowship with you. He loves spending time with you. And that's another one of these rush issues. Not only do not, I not have time sometimes to just listen to the, to the wind and to the birds and to the leaves rustling around me, but I don't even have time to open the scriptures or time to be quiet enough to hear God's voice speak in prayer. That's not how God's designed us. He's designed us for much more than that. He, he has designed us specifically to take his hand and to walk with him in the cool of the evening. I don't know about you, but I don't imagine God rushing through the Garden of Eden. I think he's walking a few steps and then pausing and looking around and having conversations. I think he's taking his time through paradise. Maybe we should uh, plan for a little more of that because that's where we're heading, by the way. Just be mindful of those things this week, church. As we anticipate the garden of God and all that he has for us, he delights in you and he has given you all of these wonderful things for you to slow down your life a little bit, take a deep breath, especially through the summer months and enjoy his world and enjoy time with him. Can you do that this this week? Can you do that this summer? That's what God has given it to you for. And all God's people said, please. Yeah, can I pray for you? Let's, let's close. Father, we love you. Thanks for your world. Thank you for Genesis 1, 2, even 3. It reminds us, Father, of, of what we have lost, but it reminds us of how much you've loved us, loved us. It reminds us of what Jesus came intentionally to give us back, which is all that was lost. We may not have it in this broken world, but we will have it, Lord. It's a promise to us. Not only is there Genesis 3, but there is a Revelation 21 and 22. We know that all things are restored and brought back to its perfect place, and we give you thanks for that. Father, can you give us a little deep breath this week, a little pause in the midst of the chaos, a little little wind, a breeze that's cool, maybe some birds, some rustling leaves, some flowers. Let us just enjoy your world, your word. Take a deep breath. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, please, amen. Thank you, church.